Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, what I'd like you to do is turn to Genesis chapter 4 and 5, really 5, I should say, and we're going to go through this chapter. On the surface, it might seem like, wow, I can't believe we're going to study this, but there is so much there, because, and it's more than just a genealogy. It's, it's a lot there to unpack, and it is really about passing on a godly legacy, as you'll see from this genealogy that's included here. It's been said, and I think this is accurate, and let me quote this, that here in America, to our forefathers, talking about you know when we established this nation as a country and put the Constitution together and the Bill of Rights, to our forefathers, the Christian faith was life. And then it says, to our parents, it became ritual. And to us, it was a necessary evil, and to our children it will be abandoned. Now, that quote's been used to describe American Christianity. And unfortunately, the stats actually prove that quote. It is getting less and less. We are seeing a legacy of Christianity not being passed on to that next generation. Now, the good news is that doesn't have to be you and I. You and I can continue to pass on that torch of faith to our kids and grandkids And we don't have to be like that. But unfortunately, the rest of society, this is what's becoming. Imagine, think about this, guys. In the World War II generation in America, 65% were born-again evangelical, at least claimed to be, okay, in the World War II generation. By the time of the baby boomers, it sunk to, I think, 43% were born-again evangelicals, or at least claimed to be. From, from there to Generation X, it dropped to 15%. That's my generation, or born-again evangelicals. And then you then add in the next generation, millennials, only 4% are born-again, or at least claim to be born-again evangelicals. And then you have Generation Z. And we don't have all the stats on Generation Z. But what does that tell you based on the stats that there has been a radical decline of American uh, Christian values, Judeo-Christian values that have been passed on to the next generation, it has gotten worse and worse to where now with the millennials we're down to 4%. That's scary because I don't know what happens to a constitutional republic which is held together by the framework of biblical Christianity that when you jettison the very foundation that holds the society together, I don't know what you get other than communism, Marxism, socialism, or whatnot. You will not get what America was, was based on. And our founding fathers did say this. The only way the system is going to work is if people are moral, talking about Christian morality. And so we're seeing this happen in front of us, but at the same time, That is, as you read this text, what you're going to see is there's there's a line, there's a remnant that never gives up the fight. There's a remnant and a line that continues to pass on the torch of faith, and they do a very good job at it. It's small in number. It always has been small in number. It's always a remnant that gets it and is able to pass it on. 
The majority of people don't, but the remnant does. And I pray that you and I here today are that remnant that can continue to pass that torch on. What we're going to study is some of the aspects of how to pass that torch on and what to do in our own lives. As we saw last week, one of the aspects, which is a sign of spiritual maturity, is that the believer can confess Christ. And what that means, just as a review, is that that believer can speak the truth in love, even if it upsets people, even if they get persecuted by it, even if people divide from them because of the truth, so be it. That this Christian is willing and so mature spiritually that they can stand in the face of opposition and speak the truth. That's a good place to be. That's what we need to teach our kids for the next generation. The type of spiritual maturity they will need for the next 10 to 20 or 30 years is like nothing you've ever seen Your children, my children, our grandchildren will have to have a very deep spiritual maturity in order to live in a post-Christian culture. They will have to be like the Apostle Paul's mindset. They will have to be like Timothy. They will have to be like Titus. They will have to be like Apollos, who they they went into that first century generation and, and changed the world just with a small number of people. It'll be a tough deal, but how do you do it? We have to build that spiritual maturity. We'll see some of these aspects here in this genealogy. What you're getting ready to study is called the remnant line, the seed line, that's going to be used for the bringing of the Messiah into the world. And this seed line is going to be highlighted, and it's going to show you that when these people submit to God and do what he wants them to do, he uses them at a great level to do great things for his kingdom, for his gospel. And that's the same thing for you and I. Even though the whole world is coming around us, it's just dismantling in front of us, we still can fight for what we know is right. We still can take a stand for the truth and make sure our kids do it. But you have to be in the fight. You have to be willing to engage. We got too many Christians sitting on the sidelines Sitting this whole fight out. And that's been our problem. That was their problem. The majority of them sat out in that world. This minority of remnant believers were the only ones that were fighting. And it's always been like that. But that's okay. We'll be part of that group that fights to the very end. That will not move on our stance on the Bible, Jesus, and his word. So let's look then at what this remnant did, how they passed the torch of faith on, and take our cues from that of how to do that in passing on our our legacy to our children and grandchildren. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In that day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So it's it's rehashing what happened in Genesis 1 and 2, okay? I won't unpack that because we already did. He created them male and female, by the way. I know it seems like, why are you stating the obvious? Because now it's not obvious, but you have to state it, right? Male and female, two genders, not three genders like Joe Biden said. Okay. And blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Okay. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his 
own likeness after his image. So now what the text is trying to tell us, what Moses is trying to say is, Adam is made in the image of God. Humans are made in the image of God, but also humans have the image of Adam in them as well. And that is what we call the sin nature, that propensity to pull us away from God and do our own things. And so there's a twofold image in us, the image of God and the image of Adam. Okay. So then he has a son, and this son is the replacement for Abel. Remember, Abel was murdered by Cain. And so this, and they named him Seth. Seth means appointed or foundation. And it means that God has replaced Abel with Seth and is going to start a new seed line through this individual and through his progenitors. Verse 4, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. They lived a very long time at that point in time. And the reason for that is because the genetics were still pure. They didn't have a lot of mutations. And so the genetics let them live possibly close to a thousand years. A lot of them were dying, you know, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. And it's because of the genetics. Now we're so far removed, our genetics now only allow us then to live, you know, 70, 80 years at best. But back then, that they could live a long time. Also, the environment was different. A lot less radiation, apparently, if, there, if uh, the environment was different before the flood. And so it allowed animals to grow to large sizes uh, and, and humans, obviously, to live very, very long time, uh, periods of time. Nonetheless, it's continuing to show this line, and that, but notice what it says, and he died. The fact that God said, dying you shall die, the curse is in effect, and they will not make it because death will catch up to them. Now, what you're going to get through, and, and just, just get through this, because it's a lot of repeats, but I, what, what I want you to hear is the repeating words in here, okay? Verse 6, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 800 years and seven years and had sons and daughters. So they're practicing the dominion mandate by having children, okay? So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Notice the repeat, he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years, and he had sons and daughters. There's the dominion mandate. So all of the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Notice the repeat. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalel. After he begot Mahalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters, replenishing because of the death principle. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. The repeat, he died. Mahalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. Notice the repeat. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Notice the re- there's, there's several things you should have picked out on that. The repeat is they had children, they're following God, doing exactly what they're supposed to do is replenish humanity, but the death principle is at work, and he died, and he died, and he died. What's the takeaway? Well, one of the things you want to see from just this little snippet here is 
they're, they're living longer lives, no doubt, but they're still dying. And it's interesting that uh, God is showing that this is becoming a problem, that humans are dying is becoming a problem, which is going to necessitate the coming Redeemer to stop this, that someone has a solution for this to stop because people are dying. And so it, it, it fuels and adds content to Genesis chapter 3 of the promise of the seed of the woman. He is coming not only to crush the head of the serpent, but he is also coming to redeem us from dying, is the idea here. Funny, like a, a text like this, there was a businessman by the name of Henry Goodyear, and um, he was an atheist, didn't believe in God or whatnot. And anyway, his, his niece invited him to church one day. His niece is about 25 years old, Henry Goodyear, a successful businessman, but he was in his 50s and, or 60s, somewhere in that neighborhood. So his niece says, uh, Uncle, why don't you come to church? And so he finally relinquished and went. And that day, the pastor was on Genesis chapter 5. And, and of course, the niece goes, oh, no, this is a, not going to affect him. And what is he going to get out of this? Because it's just this guy lived and had kids, and he died, and just constantly, constantly. And she thought, man, I don't know if this was a bad day to bring him to church. It actually wasn't, because he heard what you heard. And this atheist, who was a successful businessman, kept hearing, and he died, and he died. And he died. So he went home that day, and he honestly couldn't get the sermon out of his head. He said, all these people lived, and they lived long ages, but they died. And he said to himself, someday I'm going to die, and I'm not prepared. And it weighed on his heart so much that he called up his niece and wanted to know the gospel because he understood his own mortality that one day he's going to die. So you just never know how a text might affect somebody. Now you think, well, I don't know, it's not a really good text that's applicable. But in effect, if the Holy Spirit's working in that person's heart, it brought him to salvation. But nonetheless, let's continue on. Now we're dealing with the person of Enoch, and this is important. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. I want you to notice that. Enoch started walking with God after 65 years. So he walked with God 300, but the first 65 years, he did not. So I want you to see there, that it's just, just becoming a believer is not automatic. Just because you're born into a family with, that has a godly legacy... That, that all the way from Adam, all the way from Seth, all the way down, this has been a godly legacy. There is no guarantee that the next generation is going to be a believer. They could be raised in church, sent to Juana, sent to Bible school, Bible study, all this other stuff, camp, whatever you can do, there still isn't a guarantee that they come out okay. We'll try to train up the child in the way he should go, but that is a generality, not an absolute promise. And unfortunately, we're watching this generation, many, many kids have been raised in a Christian home, good parents, godly church, had all the right things given to them, Bible studies, camps, awanas, you name it, good youth groups, and yet the kid still goes crazy. 
And folks, I can't overemphasize this. There is the Cain factor in everybody. And the Cain factor is we all have a free will. And even in the best of environments, a godly lineage, the kid can still go south. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And there's nothing you can do about it because that kid has a free will. So don't beat yourself up. Sometimes their free will is working against God. Nonetheless, he does come to faith in God. And this term that he walked with God is a term that only believers can do. So he obviously, it assumes he got saved, but then he starts the process of walking with God. Guys, this term is a discipleship term. It is a fellowship term, particularly of those who have advanced very far in their spiritual walk with the Lord. Not every believer walks with God. Not every believer, like we said last week, confesses Jesus. You have to have a certain level of spiritual maturity in order to confess and walk with God. Those are high, high marks of, of, of spiritual maturity. In fact, what you'll not see in the text, but you'll see later on with Abraham, when the person will confess and walk with God, they're given a special privilege and title called friend of God. Abraham, after he, he uh, obeys God to sacrifice Isaac, and you know, obviously the Lord stopped him from doing that, the minute he does that, afterwards, he's called the friend of God. And that's later on in his spiritual walk with the Lord. So we're talking about a level of spiritual maturity that very few get to, but it is available. Anyone who wants to be able to walk with God, it is available, but it requires a lot. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So he, it says that, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. He didn't live that long. There's a reason. Verse 24, and, God, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So this individual, because of what he was doing with God, eventually was translated. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. It means he was translated. So the, again, so the idea, let's unpack this before. I, there's two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the walking with God, and then I want to talk about this idea of God taking him and the reasons why. The idea of walking with God is a Jewish metaphor, okay? Now, Adam literally walked with God, right? And he could because he had not fallen. But once Adam fell, the distance between God and human beings is now there. You can't just waltz right in front of God, okay? So this Jewish metaphor, it doesn't mean that Enoch literally did this because he couldn't because of his sin nature. So it's a Jewish metaphor to explain a lifestyle of a very mature believer, and it has to do with fellowship, Communion, loyal love, faith, and obedience. And you say, okay, I understand those concepts. Okay. But those kinds of things that he did were at such a high level that he was considered of just up there like with Father Abraham, up there like with Moses. He was that kind of individual. His faith was so strong. His obedience was so pure and loyal and, 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 and in Jewish and in Christian circles, 
when you, when you read the old literature about Enoch, he is right up there with the, in the faith hall of fame. Obviously, he's in the, in the hall of fame of, of Hebrews chapter 11, but he's up there. The Hebrews ch- uh, uh, chapter 11 talks about this a little bit. Again, he's, he's, he's mentioned, and it says what characterized his life. I want you to see this. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And I'll, I'll explain taken away, but it's the idea of this faith is not just a believing faith. It's a, it's a faith after you've trusted Christ for salvation. It's a, it's a sanctifying faith. And it says, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Okay, so that's his testimony. Everybody knew that Enoch did this. He pleased God. The only way you please God is you obey him. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. The basis of obedience is our faith. So it's starting to unpack then, how is he so obedient? Because he had an incredible amount of faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that gives us a clue. Let's keep that on there, because I want you to unpack a few things. What, what are we talking about? You, you're sitting here and say, I believe God. I have faith in him. Yes, but notice what the text is saying. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That is more than believing that God exists. That is way more. Notice that it says that God is, and it doesn't fill in the blank. It's dot, 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 dot. God is what? Well, when you start unpacking this and you bring other scriptures in, it's that he has faith that God is a provider, that God guarantees his promises, that God is a sustainer, God is security, and you just keep going down the line. He believed that God is everything to him, provision, security, whatnot. He doesn't look to anything else other than God for everything he could possibly need. And since he looks at God in fulfilling all of his life, he has no problem being obedient to him. The reason we struggle with obedience to God is that we lack faith in certain areas that God can fulfill those needs. So if we are bad at handling money, it's because we don't believe God can either provide or sustain or whatever with our resources. So when we go seeking it out somewhere else, and that's what gives us, gets us into trouble and disobedience. So at the end of the day, the answer to disobedience has to do with a lack of faith in some area of our life. This guy has reached a level that all the categories in his life he trusts God for. Whatever the category is, is that achievable for Christians today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when you run into this type of Christian, it's extremely rare, but they're extremely refreshing to be around. They absolutely trust God for everything. I think of people like Steve Kern down in El Salvador is is one of the the persons that comes to my mind that when I talk to Steve and I'm around him, he's been on the mission field, I don't know, 30-something years now. He has to trust God for everything, everything, provision, health, everything, protection. He's in the number one murder country in the world, and yet he hasn't ever been harmed, God's protection. 
And notice the second aspect, that, that he, you, you have to diligently seek God. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Here's the question. Seek him for what? Dot, dot, dot. You have to seek him for everything. Wisdom, direction in life, what to do. For all the answers that you need, you seek God. And that's what he did. Those are the hallmarks of him. He did not go to any other source for information. He went to God alone. Well, that's a broad understanding of this. And, and I'm gonna, when we get into the application, I'm going to get into some more, more in the weeds kind of thing. But that's a basis of understanding of why this guy is so looked at as the spiritual giant. Trusted God for everything and sought God for everything. Okay, this being the case, then, there's a different pattern that erupts in his life. And he was not, for God took him. And so this is different. He didn't die. And why did God do this? Well, again, this goes to a bigger picture. It's not that everybody that behaves like Enoch gets to be translated. It has to do with the timing of things with Enoch. In his life, he was a preacher and a prophet, according to the New Testament. And that prophet of him was talking about what was coming. Remember, this is a remnant group, and outside of them is humanity is losing a thread quickly. The line of Cain is, is producing worse and worse people in their morality and in their unbelief. And the world is getting very corrupted very quick. And so this preacher of righteousness is standing in the middle of this darkness, preaching the truth as the world keeps getting darker and darker. And as you know, will get so dark, the flood will happen. It gets so bad that God has to issue a flood and kill all of humanity because it gets so corrupted. Now, the reason he's taken is because it's tied to the flood judgment that's going to happen. His son, Methuselah, will be the longest living person on planet Earth, but he's a sign of grace. Methuselah dies the year the flood happens as an act of grace. That's why Methuselah lives so long. As long as Methuselah is alive, the flood will not happen. The minute Methuselah dies, the flood is initiated. But what is happening prior to it? A preacher of righteousness, a prophet is preaching against that wicked generation about what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. And folks, when we get into it next week and the following weeks, it is stuff that will blow your mind. You had angels coming down, fallen angels, cohabitating with women, creating hybrids, creating Nephilim, creating giants, and creating a world of sinful chaos. Unbelievable stuff happens. And this guy is preaching against it. It's coming out against it. But what is the typology? He will be taken prior to the flood, prior to this judgment, and he's raptured out of it. He's translated from this place to another place. And, in, and I think what we start seeing is now that we, we have the New Testament and we understand the mystery of the church and we've been revealed other mysteries, it then speaks to a typology that will happen to you and I. Now follow me on this. Enoch, in his typology 
represents the church. Okay? Noah represents Israel. Enoch will be removed before the great flood, but Noah will have to go through the flood in protection. And if you start seeing the typology, the flood and the tribulation are parallel judgments and are used to contrast each other. So what you're seeing happen here is what will happen to you and I. Okay? So we're living in the same time frame, so to speak, that Enoch lived before the flood. We're living before the great tribulation. And so you and I are supposed to be doing what Enoch did. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this rapture of Enoch. And it, again, points to the biblical rapture. Um, and then obviously there's some artistic things of when the Lord's going to come back and take us home. He translates us from this life into heaven. Okay, And that's what our great hope is. And, and this will happen prior to the great tribulation. So let's start, start some typologies with the church. Number one, the language employed in this text, which uh, the Hebrew is lakash, and that lakash, if it's translated into Greek uh, in the Septuagint, means raptured, taken, or translated. It is virtually the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's the same concept that you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The language is pointing to the harpazo in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11. It's connected that you and I will be translated. Now, Paul gave us a little bit more understanding of this. He said it will be, we'll, we will be translated in the twinkling of an eye. It's that quick. So the language connects it. Number two, Enoch is not Jewish. He's a goy. He is a Gentile, right? There's no Jewish people until Abraham. Abraham is both Jew and Gentile. But all these people here, even though it's a seed line, are Gentiles. Question then. The church age is made up of Jew and Gentile, but primarily the church is Gentile. And this is what Acts chapter 15 talked about, that God is pulling out a remnant of Gentiles from the Gentile people during this age. And so the church is characterized by Gentile salvation. This is a Gentile. This is a goy. You and I are Gentiles and goys. Three, Enoch's name means teaching. By the way, that's the primary purpose of the church. What does the Great Commission say? Teaching them to obey all things as I have commanded you. And yet, lo, I'm with you for, in, even until the end of the age. The primary focus of our ministry is teaching. E Enoch's primary focus was teaching. Four, Jewish tradition holds that he was born on the 6th of Sivan, which is Chag HaShavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. They also say he was raptured on that day. Again, that's just, just simply Jewish tradition, but isn't it interesting? What day was the church born on? Pentecost. Interesting. Five, Enoch was a preacher, a watcher on the wall, and he was a prophet. He warned to that generation of the impending judgment. What are you and I doing? We're a warning of the impending judgment of the great tribulation. Six, Enoch ministered to the first great apostasy. 
there was rampant apostasy before the flood, worshiping uh, fallen angels, thinking there were gods and whatnot. That, and what age are we in? Of great apostasy, the, the great falling away before the, before the tribulation. And Paul said that would happen. Seven, Enoch preached about the end times and warned about the second coming of the Lord. Look what he said in Jude. It's funny, he transposed all the way to the second coming, Jude 14 through 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, he prophesies the second coming. By the way, that comes out of the uh, uh, first Enoch. It's interesting, if you ever read the first Enoch, it's not a canonical book, but it is the literature of, of the first century at the time of Jesus that all Jews knew. Even the early church fathers knew the book of Enoch. It was a common understanding among them. So Jude even quotes it, which means that that saying right there is scripture inspired and whatever was there was true. And, and nonetheless, there, there's a lot of influence on Enoch, especially on the first century writers of the New Testament. A lot of the phrases that they will use in the New Testament comes from the book of Enoch. It's very interesting. But so there's, there's something there. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something there. By the way, the book of Enoch will give more information about what happened in Genesis 6, which I will explain to you next week. Nonetheless, number eight, Enoch never experienced death because he was translated. That's exactly what will happen to us, according to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And nine, Enoch was removed before judgment. The ungodly perished in the judgment, and another group goes through the judgment, which is Noah and his family. Noah and his family represent the nation of Israel who will go through the tribulation. Enoch represents the church who will be translated before the tribulation in the rapture. And then the other ungodly group will go through the tribulation and perish just like the flood. Have you ever noticed the typologies in the the Old Testament about the rapture? The rapture is a mystery. But nonetheless, you can see it in the typologies. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels go down and they remove the righteous people, the believers, out of Sodom and Gomorrah before destruction comes. That's a typology of the rapture. Before judgment comes on this world, he will remove his believers. Take us home. Got that. You read the book of Daniel? You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they got thrown into the fiery furnace? Why wasn't Daniel with them? Have you ever noticed that? Where was Daniel? He's mysteriously absent. It's a typology. Daniel is connected to John. John and Daniel represent the church a lot of times. Daniel is conspicuously absent from the fiery furnace situation. He's removed. Only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, represents Israel, go through the fire of the great tribulation. And who appears in the fire? Messiah. Who will appear in the fire of the great tribulation? Messiah will come to rescue Israel, or in in, in other words, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But where's Daniel? He's not there in the fire. It's, it, you see these typologies all over the place. It's, it's all through 
the Old Testament once you understand the, the mystery of the rapture. Last one, or a couple last ones here. He was taken at 365 years of age. Did you catch that one? Why? Why 365? Well, most scholars will say, obviously, that refers to our solar calendar. And Gentiles go by a solar calendar, do we not? We use a solar calendar. Do you know what calendar the Jews use? A lunar calendar. Their year is 360 days. Our year, because we go by the sun, is 365. Hence, they say even the number of days or the years he was taken represents a Gentile calendar and represents a Gentile issue of being removed. 11. Jewish tradition held that Enoch was revealed mysteries to Methuselah who encouraged believers during the final days before the flood. Now, we don't know what these mysteries are, but that's Jewish tradition. Is it an interesting that Jewish tradition, even though it's Jewish tradition, matches, though, what was revealed to the church? Did you know that there are eight mysteries in the New Testament that were revealed to us in the church? That what, what I mean by that is they weren't revealed in the Old Testament, but they were revealed by new revelation in the New Testament. Do you know what these eight mysteries are? Let me show them to you. First of all, there's the five mysteries of the church. The seven stars and seven lampstands are talked about in Revelation. The, the body is, was a mystery, the body of Christ, the indwelling of Christ in the believer, the bride of Christ, and the mystery of the rapture were not talked about in the Old Testament, but were revealed to us. The other thing is the mystery of Israel's hardening and repentance was revealed to us. And lastly, and that's Romans 9 through 11, and lastly, there, there was two satanic mysteries revealed to the church, mystery Babylon and mystery of lawlessness and the lawless one. Now, I'm not going to go into all those, but I'm just showing you even what was revealed to us, mysteries, matches the tradition, the Jewish tradition of Enoch and him telling mysteries to Methuselah. Now, all that to say is, that is why when you see Enoch, he's a picture of us. He's a picture of what we're supposed to be doing. And we're supposed to be walking with God, being a preacher of righteousness, preaching against apostasy, telling the world that the judgment is coming. You better get right. We're supposed to be doing that. That's the church's job. But ask yourself this question. How good is the church doing right now of doing that? Right? You find very few churches, you find very few Christians actually doing what Enoch did. Now, I'm not saying they're not going to be raptured. I'm just saying on the basis of what Enoch was doing, preaching against this ungodly world before the flood happened, that's what you and I are supposed to be doing, standing in the gap, doing our job, walking with God. But so many Christians are now uh, MIA, missing in action. We don't know where they're at anymore. They're just wandering not about the task that God has given the church. So here's the question. Where did Enoch go? Now, this is a little different. When we go, we go to heaven, okay? But back then, they couldn't go directly to heaven because there was a sin barrier. Even though they were saved, they still couldn't enter the presence of God. So where did they go? They went to what's called Sheol, the place of the dead, in the earth, in a place, and in Sheol, there was a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. 
and there was two compartments there. Let me show you just a kind of a... In the underworld, there's a place that we call hell, and then there's a place called paradise or Abraham's bosom. This is in the center of the earth, okay? And, and this is where all the saints went prior to the cross. Once the cross happened and the ascension happened, the saints were taken to, to heaven now. And that was in Ephesians chapter 4. But just to conceptualize this a little bit of Sheol, it just gives us an understanding that this is what happened. There was a great chasm between the place we call hell or Hades versus Abraham's bosom. And they actually could talk back and forth over this chasm according to Luke chapter 16, if you remember that text. And, and so they could talk one, uh, over one another, but one is, and there's this kind of an artist rendition, they could see over, and this is a picture of Abraham and Lazarus talking to the, the rich man. And uh, you, you kind of get a sense of Luke 16 in that. But what was the point? It was a temporary holding place for the righteous before the sacrifice could happen. But right now, Everyone who dies without Christ goes to this place and awaits final judgment at the great white throne judgment, and then eventually will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's how it goes in, in that sense. It's not purgatory. It's not, it, no, it's not that. It's, it's, it's death row, basically. It's death row. You're waiting to be executed in one sense of being judged and then thrown into a worse situation called the lake of fire. So that's how it's a little bit different. So when Enoch was translated, he was translated to paradise. He was translated to Sheol, not to heaven. A lot of people make the mistake, oh, he went to heaven. You can't go to heaven until the cross happens. So theologically, he's in paradise. Okay, let's go down to Methuselah a little bit. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and his sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah, the longest living human on the planet, were 969 years, and then he died. Again, back to Methuselah now. Methuselah is the oldest living human that's ever lived, but the reason he lives so long is to give God's grace to that world before the flood. Again, as long as Methuselah is alive, the flood will not come. And so, again, points to Second uh, Peter chapter 3. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's why there's a delay in judgment. God is trying to get many people saved, and they don't. They just simply refuse. But Methuselah shows you that God is, ex uh, is extenuating grace to people. Now let's put it today. God has given a lot of grace to people right now, a lot, and they don't see it. And when judgment comes, they're not going to have any excuse of saying, well, you didn't give me a chance. Right now, it's easy to get saved, especially in America. There's no persecution hardly in America. It's real simple. You know, you know if you're in a third world country, your life might be at stake. But coming to faith in Christ in this age of grace is fairly easy. There's no one pushing you, man. What do you think is going to be harder, getting saved now or getting saved in the tribulation when someone wants to cut your head off if you believe? Now is the time. And unfortunately, people keep kicking the can down the road. And if you get left behind because you kick the can down the road and you're left behind, you will have to make a decision at some point in your life, will I accept the mark of the Antichrist and perish when Jesus returns? Or will I accept Christ and get beheaded by the Antichrist? 
Those will be your options. So now is the time to make that decision. Now. Do it now before it's too late and you get left behind in this rapture. God doesn't want you to perish, but he'll let you make that decision. So the flood then comes after Methuselah, but let's, let's unpack this about Noah real quick in verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, which means rest or comfort saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, Genesis chapter 3, because of the ground, Genesis chapter 3, which the Lord has cursed. You know what the problem was with Lamech? God bless him. He believes Noah is the Messiah. God bless him in, in, in one sense that he understands the, the seed promise. He knows there's something different about Noah. He knows something's going on, so he thinks that his own son is the Messiah. Eve made the same mistake about Cain, if you remember that. So it's it's the right thinking, but wrong application. Noah will be sent for another purpose, as you know. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll get into Noah when we get into the flood. But what's the point about this? The point is this. This is seven generations that keep passing the torch on and it produces Noah. As you know, he is the, 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 one of the heroes of the faith. And you know, know what Noah's role will be. What's the point? It's showing you that these people in the midst of a dark world and all the chaos that was going on in Genesis 6 that you'll see, were still able to pass on the torch of faith. And God do incredible things through someone like Enoch, someone like through Methuselah, and even someone through Noah. And that's the same for you and I. If you walk with God, if you confess Christ, he will use you for those great things. And you will be able to pass that torch on and see faith in your own children's life. No guarantees, but it it increases the chances. A little caveat to this. One more thing that God shows you in using these people who passed on the torch of faith. For the last three weeks, I've been putting on your outline the lineage. Do you see the names on the good side? And do you see the translations of their names? Take a look. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh, mortal frailty. Canaan or Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means bless God. Jared means descent or come down. Enoch means dedication, teaching, commencement. Primarily teaching is what Enoch means. Methuselah, when he dies, judgment comes. Lamech, powerful or conquering. Noah means rest or comfort. Do you see it? Do you see it? It's there. It's beautiful. Connect the dots. What is it saying? It's absolutely genius. This is only supernatural. No human being could have ever done this. Because who, when you name your kid, did you think someone said, hey, name your kid this? Because we ought to keep the synergism and what the message we're trying to say. Uh-uh. You see it? You've got to see it. You don't see it? Let's, let, let me show you what the message says. And, I, and you add a couple words and then you'll see this. 
The message is man, that's Adam, due to the, or it should be D-U-E, uh, to the fall has been appointed by God due to the curse to death, mortal frailty, which is the sorrow of humans, right? That's why, they, and they died, and they died, and they died. However, the blessed God, Yahweh, it's referring to Yahweh, will come down from heaven and what? Teach. Teach what? That when he dies, for what? Our judgment, the judgment to come, right? When he dies, that's Methuselah. When he dies, judgment comes. Judgment of our sin, and he conquers sin and death by the resurrection, or we're adding New Testament words in, he will be able to give rest or salvation rest to those who believe in him. Isn't that amazing? When you put those word, those that lineage together, it spells out the message of how God is going to fix the problem in Genesis three. Absolutely supernatural, unbelievable, and it, it, and, and again, this is God's providence working through a line who obeys Him, working through a, a lineage of passing the torch on. I will use you at that kind of level. Well, I'll even inspire you to name your kids to spell out a message. Unbelievable. Let's get some application and we'll wrap things up. I gave you a handout, and I'm not going to go through all of this. I gave you a handout, and the usher should have given you this. I'm not going to go through all of this, but what I'm trying to point out here is what does it mean to walk with God? Well, when you get into the weeds, this is the stuff that starts becoming the groundwork to get to that level. Now, on the back side, I put what happens when a believer doesn't walk with God. And you will see what people do when they do that. But just, again, walking with God is the idea of life direction. Where are you going? And are you doing the things in your personal life to change to make sure you stay on the path with God? Now, any of us can walk off the path. And I'm, again, I'm not going through all of this. You can take this home and study yourself. But you see, the minute you don't forgive, the minute you don't repent, the minute you refuse to listen to the truth, you're off the path. And that kind of person can't walk with God. Now, you're saved. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you're not on the path. And when you're not on the path, God can't work through you. As you see, this lineage was able to be worked through because they're obedient and faithful to God. So really what we're talking about is life direction. That's what we're talking about. Study this on your own. I don't have the time, but here's, here's what we're going to go with. Notice that these individuals were given names. Methuselah, Noah. And you'll see the rest of the biblical characters be given names. Right? Daniel, Mike L, Gabriel. All of them were given names. And all of their names mean things. They connotate something about the person that becomes the hallmark of their life. Like Jesus, his name is Yeshua, God's salvation, right? His name encapsulates all that he's about. And that's what the biblical characters do. Their names encapsulate all of what their life was about. And here's the thing. In Revelation, do I have that text in Revelation? I don't know if I put that on the outline. Did I have it? No, I didn't put it on there. Okay. In the book of Revelation, in one, in, I think it's chapter 2, in one of the churches, it gives a promise to those who overcome 
I will give him a new name. I will give him a new name. That is a reward that Messiah will give you for the legacy you and I left. Now, that name will be carried with us for all eternity. You will not have your name that you currently have. You will be given a new name that Messiah will designate to you based on the kind of life you lived here. I don't know what your name will be, but it will characterize a highlight of your life that characterize your life. Maybe it will be faith. Maybe it will be grace. Maybe it will be strength of God. Maybe, maybe it will be forgiveness. Maybe it will be love, agape, or whatever the, whatever the name is given to you, it is your legacy for what you did here. I want you to think about that. Question, what legacy are you currently leaving for everybody to know? What do you want people to know you by? Do you want people to know you grumped up? Bitter, unforgiving, messed up, crazy, nuts, disobedient. You don't want that, right? No one wants that. But all of Cain's lineage has those kinds of names. They have bad things associated to their names. And it is, they, they mean bad stuff. We don't want that. So here's the question and the application. At this point in your life, what do you think you're going to be defined by? Can you take a guess at what your name will be? That Messiah says, your name for all eternity is now this. That takes some introspection. That takes a large look at what's going on in your personal walk. But it is the name you will carry for all eternity. It is your legacy. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.